when we talk about the development of wisdom. <clears throat> wisdom being the knowledge and vision that liberates the mind from ignorance and delusion. One of the issues that comes up is the uh, way to relate to the difference between Samuti Satcha and Paramatta Satcha, conventional truth, ultimate truth. Or sometimes in Thailand, you hear the teachers talk about Samut Banyat. <clears throat> Conventional truth and almost written or established truth, as in what you get in books, theories, ideas. And then Vimuti, liberation, which comes from when the mind has insight into paramatta satcha, ultimate reality. How do we relate to these different levels or depths of wisdom? And you'll see in the way the Buddha taught and the way our teachers have taught sometimes interchange between the two. When we teach the Vinaya, learn the Vinaya, by and large we're talking on the level of Samuti Satcha or Samuti Banyati. Conventions, apparent truth, using language, labels, the uh, laying down of rules of training for different reasons. The do's and don'ts, the things we should do, the things we shouldn't do. On that level we talk about a person, somebody who keeps rules, follows rules and practices, somebody who refrains from inappropriate behavior, unwholesome, unskillful behavior of body and speech. One who trains their minds with hiriotapa and so on. And we talk about a person, a being, a self, because it's convenient, which is where samuti and banyati comes from. It's convenient to use language to communicate between each other as human beings, to help run the world, society. So we talk about a self. Then on the level of meditation, well, we may still use conventional reality. There's somebody who, who meditates, who develops, mindfulness, the quality of knowing, 
We say the one who knows. There's a one, there's a person who develops that. But then the knowledge, the knowing that is developed is liberating when there's insight into anicca, dukkha, anatta. Impermanence, suffering, not self. Like insight, knowledge is taking the mind to beyond samuti and banyati to see the true nature, true essence of reality, of phenomena, to see that all phenomena are without self, to see no self or uh, to penetrate emptiness, emptiness of self in phenomena. to help us free us from the delusion of self. And then we get this problem where training the self on the level of samuti and banyati, conventional reality, following rules, precepts, practices, even coming to sit meditation, walk meditation, we talk about a self. But then as we develop the Eightfold Path, mindfulness, insight. We let go and abandon the sense of self or see through the delusion of self. Lungta Mahabua would sometimes just simplify it to help the practitioner. Say when you talk about sila, there's a self. When you talk about samadhi, there's a self. When you talk about wisdom, panya, there's no self. As we practice, we have to develop a skillful attitude towards this, both as we hear teachings and then as we consider and lead our life as bhikkhus in a skillful way. Just to dispense with all convention, rules, conventions of society and all sila and vinaya will lead to a very confusing time for us. So we need the structure, the form, as a way to help train the mind as part of the Eightfold Path comes from the development of right view, in the beginning of the Eightfold Path, Samaditi. In the beginning you might say it's Lokya Samaditi, the right view on the level of the worldly right view, that it's correct to follow the Vinaya, to think in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil. We train in this but obviously it's supporting the deepening of our understanding of truth. The development of sila, following the, the conventions of sila, helps to calm the mind and bring up the qualities that result in the restraining of our unwholesome negative mind states and the arising of wholesome mind states. This helps the development of samadhi, 
sati and samadhi and right effort, abandoning unwholesome mind states, cultivating wholesome mind states, bringing the mind to the point where it can potentially see through conventional reality to see the anicca dukkha anatta of body and mind, physical, mental phenomena. It's important to remind ourselves of how, how the Eightfold Path works. Obviously, the Eightfold Path still falls within the insight of an Dukkha Anatta. There's no self in the Eightfold Path. It's truth, the Four Noble Truths and the truth of, the, of Magga. The Buddha pointed out on paper or in a talk, it's still conventional truth, conventional reality. It's pointing to ultimate reality in that when human beings employ this method, the path, the result is that they gain liber liberating insight. And there's no self in that, <clears throat> it's just a truth. And so it can apply to anyone, man, woman, young, old, who applies the Eightfold Noble Path sincerely, correctly, beginning with the right view, perfecting their right view from Lokia to Lokutara, to transcendental right view. The effect on the mind is it liberates the mind from ignorance and delusion. That's just a truth, that's just the way things are. There's no self in that. There's no one who's liberated. You could say it's just cause and effect. The cause is maga. The result is pala. Liberation. Sammanyana dasana samavimuti. Right knowledge, liberation. Right knowledge and vision, right liberation is the result of cultivating maga. That's just the truth and that's just the way it is. There's no person involved in that so there's no one, no person who owns these truths or has these truths. It's not a question of a person believing in these truths. It's just, just truth. It's just dhamma. It's not something <clears throat> the Buddha or a deity can bestow on us, transmit to us. It's more a natural process of cause and effect. When maga is cultivated, pala is a result. And there's no person, being or self involved in that. But when we talk about it, there is. And there's one who follows the path, there's one who cultivates right view, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. Obviously, it's convenient to talk like that. But the experience takes us beyond self. Similarly, when the mind is conditioned by ignorance, craving arises automatically whether we agree or not, like it or not, whether there's a sense of self there or not. 
ignorance conditions, craving, craving conditions, attachment, dana, upadana. That's just the way it is, that's life, that's nature. In that sense, even the arising of unwholesome mental states, conditioned by ignorance and then the suffering that they bring, is not self. The insight of the noble ones is that there's no self in that. It's just nature. When ignorance is conditioning the mind, craving, attachment, becoming, suffering arise as a result. Man, woman, young, old, me, you, whoever, that's the way a mind works. Conditioned by ignorance, suffering arises. Conditioned by maga, trained with right view, sila samati panya, liberation arises. This is nature just in the same way as the sun produces heat. Clouds contain moisture. That moisture drops down when the conditions are right. It's just, you could say, a law of nature. It's just the way it is. But because of ignorance, we keep coming back to the sense of self. So in the beginning, just again, going back to conventional reality, samuti, satcha, we see gradually the value of training this self in a skillful way in order to develop the path so ultimately we can free ourselves from the delusion of self. But we use the convention of self skillfully. So much of the Buddha's teachings were based around this. We learn to cultivate harmony between selves, between people because it's convenient for the practice. So in a, particularly in a monastery where you're in a group, not necessarily based on family ties or even cultural or national ties, we cultivate harmony because it's a skillful quality and a skillful environment for the development of the path. We cultivate Brahma-viharas, the Buddha's teaching how to live as a community, de developing basic goodwill. Even this is beginning to erode away the sense of self or the conditions that lead to the arising of sense of self. So when you practice Brahma-viharas, you're developing a sense of goodwill and empathy towards others, understanding others, more sensitive to others, brings you to realization that other human beings are the same as you. They feel pleasure and pain like you do. They want happiness and don't want suffering just like you do. As you develop metta, develop karuna, empathizing with others when they suffer, maybe seeking to help relieve their suffering. In the beginning we practice that with a sense of self. I am practicing metta, I am cultivating metta, I am cultivating karuna, true. But if you develop the Brahmavihara sincerely, you'll notice the sense of self does soften and dissipate more easily. 
it provides the supportive conditions for development of mindfulness, samadhi, and then wise reflection and development of insight. And when you perfect the Brahmaviharas, you could still, still say the most subtle sense of self is still there. We can still cling to the samadhi, the factors of jhana, the experience of the Brahmaviharas can still condition the self, but it's a very subtle self that's maybe easier to see or easier to let go of in normal circumstances. It's not coarse. In the coarse sense of self, when we're still learning just to establish good Vinaya, good Sila, establish the Brahmaviharas, we keep dropping back into experiences of suffering when emotions, particularly negative destructive emotions, take over the mind. It's hard to let go of that kind of self. It's the self of dukkha. When we're angry, sad, depressed, despairing, worried, doubting, confused. And the nature of dukkha is that the sense of self is being conditioned from ignorance, craving, attachment, and when dukkha arises at that moment, we can't separate the mind from its object. So we have a strong sense of self. The stronger the dukkha, the stronger the sense of self, the further away from insight. That's harder to let go of. As you develop the Brahmaviharas, and you're laying very good foundations for letting go of the sense of self because you're bringing the sense of self to a more subtle level where you feel more peaceful, at ease, more happy in yourself so that it's easier to reflect back on the true nature of things. The sense of well-being that arises with the Brahmaviharas allows us to look back at dukkha, see it for what it is, Abandon it, abandon the causes of it. So we can use a sense of self in the beginning as a skillful convention. So we do reflect, we reflect. Am I keeping the Vinaya? What is my mental state? How well am I? cultivating the path and so on. We can reflect back and we use the sense of self all the time. But obviously as mindfulness improves, you know, those drops of water Lumpur Cha was always talking about, so they become more continuous. It's the continuity of mindfulness that helps the mind to quieten down enough to start seeing through the sense of self, even the sense of self that forms around wholesome mental states, wholesome experiences. Starts to dissolve. When there's a strong sense of dukkha, there's always that sense of solidity. Body and mind seem very bound up with each other. You know, the stronger the negative emotion, the stronger you feel it, the adrenaline, the negativity, painful feelings, tense, stressful feelings and stressful mind states, thoughts and so on. The sense of solidity, mind and body, sense of permanence, sense of self. 
as we develop mindfulness, one of the effects of mindfulness is the, it gives you the equanimity, the stillness of mind. This sense of that self starts to dissolve, dissipate. Mind and body don't seem like they're so linked together so, so strongly. It's possible to reflect back on the body. So we do the body contemplations, contemplate the 32 parts for four elements, the corpse meditations. And we're changing the perception with the continued presence of mindfulness. It's possible to see Rupa as Anicca Dukkha Anatta in the mind within insight arising does want to let go of some of that previous identification with body as self. When mindfulness is present, we reflect on the body. You're seeing body parts as body parts, rather than this solid mass of me, mind, myself, with all the mental and physical experience all tangled up together in a very solid mass. Now we're observing with mindfulness. It's possible to start separating out. This is how the Buddha encouraged us to practice, reflect on the 30 few parts, mentally put them aside, and then just in your daily life, notice shaving head, hair, nails growing, you clip your nails, skin changing, skin coming off in small amounts. Going to the toilet, eating food, breathing in, breathing out. The more con continuity of mindfulness you have, the more this sense of self in the body starts to dissipate, disperse. There's more hair, skin, bones, flesh, urine, feces, snot, whatever. You're seeing more of these body parts and the, with the equanimity of mindfulness, you're just seeing them as, as they are without according to the attraction and or the aversion to them. Similarly with feeling. The feelings we experience of pleasure, pain, or neutrality. When mindfulness is more continuous, there's stillness, there's equanimity, you can look at feeling, observe feeling arising and ceasing without forming a sense of self around it. Or if we do, it's a very subtle sense which we may be able to let go of with time. Not like before we used to practice when every painful feeling becomes a cause for a mental proliferation, aversion, complaining, negativity in our mind. Every pleasant feeling becomes a cause for indulgence. Seeking after more pleasant feelings, identifying with them as me, mine, myself. As we apply mindfulness, you're seeing feeling as feeling. It arises, it ceases, that's its nature. And the one watching, the one who knows, really is not a person either. It's just this quality of knowing, but knowing correctly, trained with right view. 
and all the other path factors. So seeing, feeling, arising, and ceasing. That's its nature. It arises, it ceases. It's dukkha. You know, any pleasant feeling doesn't last because it arises and ceases, so it can't bring you ultimate lasting satisfaction. With the presence of mindfulness, contemplating this and the mind tires of grasping after, clinging on to pleasant feeling and always seeing the arising of pleasant feeling as some kind of ultimate happiness, something desirable to chase after gets tired of the process of ignorance, conditioning, craving, conditioning, upadana, attachment. Doesn't seek it so strongly. Maybe for moments just completely doesn't want it at all. Not with aversion, but just tiredness and clarity, seeing the way things are. In the beginning, with the continuity of mindfulness, some, we get some periods of calm and peace or craving fades. Samadhi pretty much counteracts craving. As you keep contemplating now, you're uprooting upadana and clinging. The mind doesn't want to cling on to that which is dukkha and the cause of dukkha. Clinging to feeling as self, clinging to body as self. But as you practice, you appreciate the whole of the path, you know, the sense of well-being that comes from developing the sila, the vinaya, the brahmaviharas, supports the arising of mindfulness, right effort, right mindfulness, right samadhi. We appreciate that, so we continue to develop, uphold the vinaya, train, develop the brahmaviharas, Continue to put effort into mindfulness, developing meditation objects, the breath, butto, as we appreciate the different path factors, can also see that really it's not not a person or a self doing this. It's just the effect of the path on a on a mind, on a human mind. It's like this has a liberating effect, liberating momentarily and maybe liberating ultimately. But that's the nature of the path when you develop it. There's no, ultimately there's no one doing that, owning that experience. It takes us beyond the conventional reality, but that you don't forget conventional reality. So it doesn't take you to a state where you're completely oblivious to the world or crazy or unable to function as a human being. But you can see the difference between conventional reality and ultimate reality. With the development of mindfulness, based on right view, development of, right, of samadhi and training in wisdom. You know, this sense of self-identity 
with the candors, with body, with mind, is weakening, lessening, and it's peaceful. That's part of the reason we do it. We actually feel good when we see through the delusion of self. It's not something that is unpleasant. It's a relief. There's a setting aside and there's some peace and contentment that comes from that. Obviously we still remain vigilant because you can still attach to that sense of peace of contentment. The sense of self reforms, holds on to that. So we have to keep contemplating, keep practicing. But you also get maybe the samaditi becomes more refined, more more developed. So you intuiti intuitively notice when the sense of self starts to re-emerge. Maybe holding on to more subtle, pleasant, pleasant feelings that arise from the practice, particularly from meditation. Sense of well-being around sila precepts. So we can continue to contemplate that, not be, becoming complacent, not just accepting a certain level of contentment or happiness with the practice because there's still a sense of danger if, if there's a, an attachment with a sense of self even to the pleasure of sila, samadhi, wholesome dhammas, there's still a cause for more attachment, still conditioning the arising of more attachment, more ignorance, more birth. So we have to keep on cultivating the path, keep refining the wisdom, the insight, keep checking, keep referring back to what's going on in our experience. It's not to dismiss or throw out the pleasures and the happiness that comes from the spiritual path, from development of maga, but it's not to be fooled by it either. As we develop more sati, more samadhi, then naturally we see how the mind, its habit is to keep re returning to samuti satya, returning to la labels and language and concepts. And they are useful pointers on the path, signs, reference points. But you also have to see the danger in that, see how the mind prefers to cling. Sometimes it prefers to cling to that which is familiar. And we're familiar with the sense of self, which is conditioned by ignorance, craving, attachment. Sometimes just familiarity with that means we prefer it. It's like when you're meditating, sometimes we prefer the hindrances because we're used to them. It's easier just to follow the path of habit. So I often say when you 
meditating, it's easy to just get into the habit of becoming dull, closing your eyes, just drifting off, not mindful at all. Over and over again, day after day, becomes a habit. We're used to that. Part of the practice, we have to be vig vigilant, we have to be putting effort into breaking through some of these habits, the ways of thinking, whatever your particular character is, whether you're more sensual, more prone to aversion, worry, doubt, or just dullness, sleepiness. We have to break through some of the habits, some of the indulgences of the mind. The mind likes to get angry, it likes to get worried if that's what we've done before. It likes dullness. It's a form of indulgence. If you keep falling asleep when you're meditating, you know, the mind is delighting in that mental state. The physical feelings, the mental experience associated with it. We get used to it, we like it, maybe, as it were. It's a subtle form of liking, but it's liking out of habit. You have to break through that. Or if we want to just likes to think in a negative way, you have to break through that. And this is part of the reflection. We might reflect first using the convention of self. I look at my thoughts and the kind of habits of thought, habit patterns, and start breaking through that, challenge it a bit. And part of the practice is about developing courage to face the process of ignorance, conditioning, craving and attachment. We have to develop courage. It means courage to go against some of our most cherished mental friends. You know, the hindrances is like what we're used to. We like to look after them and experience them over and over again. We like to indulge them, even though they're harmful and cause us suffering. We have to be brave enough, courageous enough to go against some of them. You have to use wisdom to find techniques to be creative, how to go against our own mental states, how to let go of them, how to see beyond them, how to bring up mindfulness. On a full moon or half moon night, this courageousness is expressed in not sleeping, going to sleep, lying down, staying up when you want to go to sleep but not going with that desire, setting it aside, sitting longer, walking longer, dealing with feelings of tiredness, boredom, restlessness, aversion to the training, to the practice, whatever comes up, you have to have a certain courageousness to look at it not give in to the different mental states that arise. If you keep bringing up mindfulness, you keep returning to that quality of more pure knowing where the sense of self is in the background or seems to have completely disappeared and you're just knowing experience even if it's painful it's just 
some physical pain or some mental pain associated with a negative state or pleasure is just what it is pleasure or pain arising and ceasing we're developing that ability just to know things to know and know and know without grasping at it without letting the mind go into craving clinging so really put effort into sitting longer walking longer cultivate as a good habit the quality of knowing quality of mindfulness and then through wise reflection you develop your insight your wisdom So I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.